Well, we've now finished the story of Job. And now in the last three sermons that I have in Job, I'd like to focus on things that we can see from a bird's eye view of Job, looking at the story as a whole and some of the lessons that God has for us. There are two great theological questions that Job deals with, it seems to me. One is about the relationship between a person's suffering and a person's sin. We're going to talk about that in two weeks on November 14th. Isn't it amazing that November 14th is two weeks away? Anyway, the other is the one we're going to be talking about this morning, and that's whether there is true faith and true love for God in this world, or whether all people who claim to believe believers are driven only by self-interest, even the ones who appear to be righteous. Our passage this morning is two smaller sections from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job 1 verse 6 is where we begin. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Of course, having given Satan permission to do that, Satan wreaks havoc upon Job's family and his livelihood, his wealth. But then another day came along, Job 2 verse 1. And again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from the evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. In these two passages, God points out the righteous Job to Satan. And Satan responds by claiming that Job would indeed curse God if only God would remove his blessings. And in both cases, God does 
remove his protection and give Satan permission to bring great devastation down upon Job's life and his body. And Job suffers greatly. We've talked about that. But at the end of the story, there's no explicit resolution of this conversation that God and Satan had. There's no resolution to their dispute. There's no place at the end of the book where God says, I told you so. To Satan, God answers Job. God answers Job's friends. But at least in the story as we have it, God never answers Satan. However, in the end, it is obvious that Satan was proved wrong. This is implied by the fact that Job never does curse God, but repeatedly professes faith in God throughout his trials. And by their precious, their precious reunion between God and Job at the end, in the last chapter, the last chapters, and by God's affirmation of Job in addressing Job's friends. So we know Job did not love God merely because God was blessing him in earthly ways as Satan had claimed. So God dangles this man Job in front of Satan virtually begging him it seems to take up the challenge. But why did Satan take up God's challenge. Why didn't Satan say, yeah, this isn't fair. Of course Job might be faithful to you. He's a very righteous man. Why don't you choose a spiritual tiny person instead of a spiritual giant? They will curse you if you allow them to suffer. It seems to me that Satan was eager to try to prove the falsity of Job's faith for two reasons. Number one was to maximize the damage. Think of the potential impact of Job cursing God. This man who has been so highly respected this man who has been such a model of faith for so many. So many people looking to his faith in order to be strengthened in their own faith. Job's denial of God would have shaken the faith of the people throughout that whole region. But I think there's an even bigger reason than this. I don't think Satan's claim was just about Job. It seems to me that Satan jumped at the chance to negotiate with God some way to uh, disturb Job because Job was the very person he wanted to bring down. If Satan, you see, won the contest, a, a similar contest as the one he entered into over Job, if he won that with some lukewarm believer then he would have proven that that particular person wasn't a true believer. But if he won the battle over a man 
who was a giant of righteousness like Job was, then in a sense, he's proven that no one is a true believer. He's disproven faith itself. Because if Job is not a true believer, then nobody is. If the strongest man in the world is too weak, that proves that there's no one that's strong enough. So in accusing Job, in one sense, Satan was accusing all believers. For Job was the best of the bunch. He wasn't just picking someone and claiming that he was false in his faith. He is picking the cream of the crop, the best among the righteous. Because if anyone is sincere in faith, it's Job. If Job's faith could be shown to be insincere, then faith itself would be shown insincere. Satan, indeed, I believe, was claiming that no one really loved God, that no one had true faith. I think that's the point of his claim. You see, there was no dispute between God and Satan over the reality of false faith. There is going to be wood, hay, and stubble which will burn up on the last day. There's no debate about that. It's not, it was not absurd for Satan to suggest that someone might serve the Lord not out of sincerity but purely out of self-interest. Not out of love for God but out of love for one's earthly welfare. There is plenty of false faith in the world. Probably even a majority of those who claim to have faith in God have false faith. The Bible talks about this a lot. There's always a Judas around, even in the Lord's inner circle. Of course, we can't see into the heart of a man like God can. And people can be fantastic actors. So we have no way of seeing who is sincere in their faith and who isn't. Satan's ability to counterfeit far outshines our ability to discern. Even the disciples of Jesus had no idea who Jesus was talking about when he said that one of them would betray him. So we have to think the best of one another and stay out of the guessing business. If you think of the people that you walk with in Christ in your life as a crowd walking down a, a road together on their way to Jerusalem like in the Old Testament when the uh, people would walk as their whole town would leave to go to the Passover in Jerusalem and they'd walk together down the road. If you think of that as an analogy of your walk following Christ and going to Zion like we sing, you know, marching to Zion we're marching to Zion. If you think of that as your analogy, I can guarantee you that the group that arrives at Jerusalem 
will not be the same group as left your hometown. There'll be additions and there'll also be subtractions, not just through death, but there'll be subtractions through apostasy, through people turning their backs on Christ. We've seen it in this church, sadly. But it's real, it's true, and it will, it's inevitable. But the dispute between God and Satan was over whether there was any true faith, whether there were, in fact, true believers among those who professed to believe. And when Job's faith proved true, in spite of everything Satan threw at him, it proved that there was a faithful remnant. There is gold, silver, and precious stones among the wood, hay, and stubble. There is real godliness on the earth. That all faith is not phony faith. That all faith is not self-serving. That all faith is not selfishness dressed up in religious garments. That all love of good and right and God is not just an act. It proved that there are people that have true faith who aren't believers just because it gives them some earthly advantage, but they really sincerely seek the Lord and love Him. This is a very relevant issue today. Many accuse Christians of all being hypocrites. There's no dispute of whether they're Christians who are hypocrites. But many are saying they're all hypocrites. Are there? Are there people who claim and pretend to be Christians, but in their hearts they aren't? Well, absolutely. No one argues about that. But Job proves that the real thing does exist. Some non-believers act as if they've proven Christianity to be false when they find one false believer. Aha! This famous preacher or this person denied the faith. That proves that it's all a sham. That proves they're all phonies. But of course, logically, that doesn't prove the falseness of all believers. It may prove the falseness of that one. Judas doesn't prove Judas doesn't disprove the validity of the other apostles. Benedict Arnold doesn't disprove the sincerity of George Washington's love for his new country. Why is it so shocking that there are false believers? Aren't there false spouses who don't really love their mates even though they enter into marriage with them? Aren't there false patriots who act like they love their country but have other motives except love for country that are driving them? Aren't there false politicians who aren't actually trying to serve the public but themselves or some other purpose? The story of Job 
gives us no method of deciding whose faith is true and whose is not. But it definitely tells us that there is true faith in this world. One might have thought that no one's faith could have survived the suffering Job experienced. Doesn't everyone have a breaking point? Well, this introduces the question of how Job was able to survive. And it's really, the answer really is very simple. Job survived because God strengthened him. God is the one who gave Job faith and he's the one who kept it alive even through the dark days of his sufferings. And this is the case for all true believers. True faith can survive any pressure because ultimately faith is not something that just bubbles up from the inner being of a man. It is a gift of God. And God gives it and God maintains it and keeps it going. The fact is that God's power is able to trump human weakness. The power of God's spirit in his people can overpower their sin, their corruption, their weakness. The story of Job shows us what would happen really if any true believer experienced untold sufferings. They would definitely struggle like Job did. But they would survive in faith also like Job did. Why would we survive? Because it is God who sustains us. Not we ourselves. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there in that context, if you read it, he's really talking not so much about some mighty feat that I can do, but I can survive anything, no matter how hard, because God strengthens me. God is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling, to keep us from falling, and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, as we read in Jude 24. Of course, none of this applies to someone who is not truly the Lord's, to someone who merely tr tries to act like a Christian but doesn't really know Jesus, to someone who really cares only about their earthly security and reputation and prosperity. This is why even though we can't ultimately know the condition of a person's heart, Perseverance in faith, even through suffering, is one of the best indicators we have of true faith. And abandoning the Lord as a result of these trials proves the faith was not true. 1 John 2.19 refers to people who once walked among the believers and acted like Christians but it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. We see this 
in the parable of the sower. Remember that with the rocky soil and the thorny soil, there are pressures introduced into the equation that expose the falseness of the people represented by those two kinds of soil. When a tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, on account of the word, he falls away. Or the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That's in Matthew 13. You see, pressures expose what's really on the inside. Some are shown to be true, others false. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate one who proved himself to be true by means of his righteousness, even in the face of the worst suffering. Of course, Job's test wasn't just about exposing what was really in Job's heart. It was also not just about proving Job's faith, but it was also about improving Job's faith. God has other purposes as well, but certainly proving it was part of what was going on. I said earlier that Satan, I think, was not just trying to disprove the authenticity of Job's faith, but trying to disprove the authenticity of all faith, in a sense. Well, I'd like to say something more about that as in order to begin bringing this to a conclusion. It seems to me that Satan was not merely claiming that Job's faith was untrue, and he wasn't just claiming that all faith was untrue, but he was also claiming that God was untrue. You see, in his word, God tells us a lot about himself. He tells us about his attributes, he tells us about his character, his powers, and a lot of folks think that that's the only important thing to know about God. Does he exist? And if so, what's he like? But there's something else extremely important which God tells us in his word. He tells us about his work, his mission, his project, his purpose in creation. And what is this mission, this project, this work, this purpose? God has invested himself in mankind, in sinful, broken, flawed, foolish mankind. From the foundation of the world, God determined to create a person, to create a people for himself, a bride for his son, a temple made of living human stones in which he would dwell forever. He would accomplish this by the sending of his son, of course, to bear the burden of the people's guilt upon the cross, and by working in them by the power of his spirit to draw them to himself and give them the gift of faith. That's what the Bible's all about. But if Christ's bride doesn't actually love him, if his bride marries him for his money, while having no true affection for him in their heart, in her heart, if she rejects him when some of her benefits are temporarily withdrawn, then the whole mission is in vain. And all of God's interest in and work with and blessing of these people proves empty. 
In other words, if the gates of hell do prevail against the church that Jesus is building, then Jesus himself is shown to be false. This means that it's not only Job's faith that was proved by his spiritual survival through suffering, it was also the faithfulness of God that was proved. God really does preserve his saints according to the story of Job. He really is the one who is able to keep us from falling. He really does come through for his people. Little did Job know that even when he felt like he was dying, God was indeed keeping him alive. Even though he felt like God had abandoned him, God was actually right there with him, helping him, strengthening him, upholding him. In a thousand different ways, God has made it clear that he will never, ever forsake his people, including the story of Job. And after Job, he has added many strong promises and guarantees. He really wants us to feel sure about his faithfulness. Listen to Hebrews 6, 17 to 19. When God desired to show them, I'm sorry, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, that is his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? God's faithfulness to his children is an absolute promise that we can build our lives on. God has staked his whole reputation on it, his own character. Even when we feel like God has forsaken us, we can trust that he will actually never do it. God wants his children to have the utmost confidence that he will come through for them. That's part of why God gave us the book of Job. In it we see that God is faithful even when it looks like he's not. Job is not the ultimate hero of the book of Job. God is. Job's victory is God's victory. Job's vindication is God's vindication. What a help this book is then. When we are experiencing suffering or fear that feels like it's beyond our ability to endure. We don't need to fear 
even if the earth around us gives way because God is our refuge and our strength our, an ever present help in times of trouble remember when Peter walked on the water but then he took his eyes off of Jesus because of the winds and the waves and began to sink well if God left us to ourselves we would all sink under pressure like Job did but when Peter began to sink what did Jesus do he did what he always does to his children even when they are weak he reached out and he lifted Peter up and that's what he does for us at just the right time often after we would like him to do it but he does it we may panic we may get angry with the Lord we may have very little faith but it makes all the difference in the world to have Jesus in our boat it means the boat won't sink not because we're great sailors not because the storm isn't really that bad but because Jesus is in the boat and he's not going to sink because and therefore he's not going to let us sink he loves us he's chosen us for himself he has linked himself to us if we were to sink he would sink with us like just like with Job God will sustain us in faith we may complain like Job did we may even deny Jesus like Peter did but we will never betray him instead I know whom I have believed Paul says and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me God is able to sustain us he also says I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus Philippians 1 6 and Jesus our Lord said my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand he's stronger than any he's greater than all and therefore no one is going to be able to snatch you or me out of the hand of the Lord I quoted earlier from the hymn how firm a foundation we don't really know who wrote this hymn the first copy we have on where the where you put the name of the person who wrote it just says the letter K so we know that it's Mr. K but or Mrs. K maybe we don't know but anyway um, this is an amazing hymn the, the first verse is an introduction about how what great things God has said in his word for us to believe and to depend on 
and then it goes, it just, the, all the rest of the verses are crafted right from scriptures of various promises that God has given to us. But in the last verse, there's a phrase that, uh, that I don't think you find in the Bible. Uh, it says, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Beloved, I can't think of any place in Scripture that the author of this hymn could have in mind except the story of Job. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Job survived because God wouldn't allow any of his precious sheep to be snatched from his strong hand. And that's how you and I will survive as well. And on the last day, when God is bestowing honor and glory and reward on those who have endured to the end, who have finished the race, who have fought the good fight, we won't walk around celebrating and giving each other high fives. We will fall down at the feet of the Lamb and give Him glory. For He has done it. He is the one who won our salvation. And He is the one who will have sustained us in the long and arduous journey of faith. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. And yet, dear Lord, we also recognize that you've given us a tough road to walk, that it's a narrow and a difficult road and not a wide and an easy road. And we thank you, Lord, that in spite of the fact that it is a narrow and hard road, yet we can walk and enjoy because it's your road. And the wide highways that this world builds, even though they may look more easy, they are empty and they lead to death. Oh Lord, help us to walk. Help us to be secure in our faith. Help us to trust your promises. And Lord, when we find ourselves in this kind of situation that Job found himself in, may we cry out in the midst of it all. I know that my Redeemer lives. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And now, dear Lord, we thank you for the privilege of partaking of the Lord's Supper today and pray for your blessing upon it. 
May it nourish our souls, dear Lord, as we focus our attention on this one who walked and who uh, paved a path for us that we might follow him. Help us to delight in him and feed upon him and be filled with him. We pray in his precious name. Amen.